Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christianity Saturdays. Today is Saturday, December 16th, 2017. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. I don't, um... I'm not exuberant about tonight's program. I'm not happy that I have to do tonight's program. I, I believe that my hand was forced to address an issue... Um, far before I really wanted to address it, I understand that I would have had to have addressed it sooner or later. Over the past year, I have been very busy, not only with my own studies and writing, but with the real-world activities in which I feel it is necessary to participate in New Orleans and Charlottesville and Shelbyville and also in the care of our dear friend Clifton Emma Heiser, and many other things which have taken time away from my studies and kept us on the road and away from discourse in our Christogenia Forum and our wider identity community. I am only a man, and I can only do so much at once. So last week I contacted a dear friend, now that I have some time and we had hoped to see him. And he shied away from me with the statement that our lives are going down a different path. Immediately, I knew what he meant. So this evening, I am going to address a schism which has recently occurred among some of the friends who have in one way or another been associated with my ministry. This schism is not among them in particular, but between them and myself. Neither is it due to anything which I have said or done, but rather it is because they have chosen to wander down a path of teaching with which I cannot agree. I even believe that this path is a wicked path under which lies a diabolical religion of humanism and materialism, a love of mammon and a rejection of Yahweh and his word even if it is covered over with the veneer of Scripture. Over the past year, I have even given them space in my ministry to present their case, but I still cannot accept their premise. However, being busy with many other things, admittedly, I have not given this the attention which I may have, the study which I may have, and which it certainly which it certainly deserves. So, now I will do that. However, I will not name them, nor will I make any undue accusations against them. I love these people. I don't have any bad feelings towards them. I do not even believe that their motives are necessarily wicked. But I only feel that they have been blinded by their own desires and their need for carnal fulfillment. Here I seek to be as objective as possible and to get to the root of the divisions and the circumstances. But before we begin, let me also say that I doubt if this presentation will heal the divisions which have already occurred. Rather, I am certain that I will only make them angry and eager to defend themselves. Out of necessity, I must give some background as to some personal circumstances, which I am not comfortable doing, 
However, I have a need to make an example, as Paul of Tarsus had said. For there must also be sects among you, in order that those approved will become evident among you. So therefore it must be, even if I am saddened to lose the fellowship of brethren. I only want to warn others that they should give deep consideration before wandering down that same path. That is my least obligation. The reasoning by which our friends justify their departure is not new. They are, in large part, trying to spiritually advance themselves by following a man named Neville Goddard. Perhaps I should pronounce it Godpard. In a recent YouTube video, the trailblazer in this endeavor has labeled me a man of facts. While he himself claims to be a man of faith, one Christogenia Forum member who saw this and alerted me to it recently remarked that, and I quote him, I have criticisms of his metaphysical stuff and his saying that there is a man of facts he disagrees with, meaning Bill, in reference to myself, while he is a man of faith. And I've heard this from him before, and, it, and it's irked me. But in an act of brotherly love, I just let it slide. Another of the more astute members of the Christogenia Forum posted this comment in response to his remarks in this video, which is titled, Belief Burns Boats. And I have made some minor corrections for grammar, but have stayed faithful to the meaning of his original post. He said, in a private section, a members-only, a veteran-members-only section of the Christogenia Forum, he said, also he says, in his latest video, referring to this same friend, of course, that we read from someone, that he read from someone, I forget the name, that you have to burn your bridges to move forward as you have outgrown that part of your life. So my own dear friend has outgrown me. And our forum member asks, where in Christianity is there ever burning any bridges? If the other party has not gone astray from Christian principles, why would you burn that bridge? Because even if you have advanced further than them, possibly they could learn from you. Imagine if Paul thought that he had outgrown everyone and was far more spiritual and burnt his bridges. It sounds a lot like using someone until you have no further use for them. This person goes on, I have related to a lot of his videos about race and just everyday life earlier on, but this is a crooked path in my opinion, and none of it takes into account our overriding collective position. In other words, our forum member is insisting that our common labor towards the kingdom of heaven transcends these personal differences, and it certainly should. He goes on to say, imagine the Israelites 
into Babylonian or Assyrian captivity, lamenting their lack of riches or possessions. Paul actually commended them for that in his epistle to the Hebrews. He says, it's just a path that had to be traveled. Some of us are fortunate to have well-paying jobs, but for a lot of us, contemporary identity Christians, we are just the bottom of the food chain, and that's the way it will continue to be, I feel, until the kingdom of God is fully established. And that's the end of his post, and he's a relatively young man, and obviously wise beyond his years. Therefore, the fact that our friend has traveled down this path and is bringing others along with him, I am compelled to answer, as I also answered it to some degree where it was posted in the private section of our forum. This individual, who openly stated these things in his videos, which he publishes on YouTube, cannot conceal who it is that he is talking about, because we have several hundred listeners in common. They can readily discern who he is talking about, for which reason I am obliged to answer. But before I give my answer, I want to state that I am not trying to boast. I am not trying to vaunt myself. So this is what I said, speaking of his remarks, and then of my defense, of myself in defense of his remarks. And I wrote in the forum, this is really funny and really hypocritical. I have no endowment. I never have any more money in my checking account than next month's bills, at least usually. Sometimes I don't have that much. I have no job, no government checks. Christogenia is my vocation. And Melissa, my wife, has not worked since we she came to Florida. She has serious issues with three ruptured discs in her back. That's why we moved to Florida. Christogenia is a large internet endeavor with a large cost overhead. The monthly bill for my servers is more than double what he pays for rent. Nobody in their right mind would do what I do on facts. And I praise Christ that I am able to do it. But that is the truth. Based on facts, a man of facts alone would be crazy to do what I do. Faith is expressed in actions and not not in words. Christ spoke of people who expressed their faith in words and said, These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of man. Faith is expressed by what we do for our community and for our brethren. As the Apostle James said in chapter 2 of his first epistle, Even so, faith, if it has not works, is dead, being alone. Yeah, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. In what context did James say that? Christians love to say that faith without works is dead, but they ignore the context in which the words were written. So let's read the preceding three verses. What does it profit, my brethren, though a man say that he has faith and has not works? 
Can faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding ye give them not those things which are needful to the body, what does it profit? So according to the Apostle James, we practice our faith by offering our own substance to our brethren when they are needy. There is a deeper reason why I am elucidating this, and reluctantly I am going to explain it. Once again, I do not want to sound as if I am boasting. Pity me if I boast in anything but Yahweh our God and His Christ. I am not boasting. I am only stating facts. The man who now claims that I have no faith was a beneficiary of the expression of my faith when he himself was going to be homeless and I provided a place for him in my home sustaining him for several months as he recovered and put his own life back together. And now he claims that I am a man of facts insinuating that I am not a man of faith? To me that is the pinnacle of hypocrisy. Yahweh is my witness. I only offer this testimony so that others of our friends do not follow this hypocrisy. And if they do, they are hypocrites along with him. My friends have actually departed from me because they are indeed teaching for doctrines the commandments of men and even the precepts of devils. They are preaching the gospel of Neville Goddard and not the gospel of Christ. They only borrow passages from scripture that are complementary to Goddard to make it appear as though it is the gospel of Christ. Goddard himself did that. The following excerpts were found at the website Feeling is the Secret. A presentation of the book of that title by Neville Goddard. Of course, we will not present the entire book, or even an entire chapter, almost a chapter, but we will not, we will present enough of this first chapter to, to attain an understanding of the premise of Goddard's teachings. First, from the foreword of the book, Feeling is the Secret. Bullshit. Feeling is the Secret by Neville Goddard. He says, This book is concerned with the art of realizing your desire. It gives you an account of the mechanism used in the production of the visible world. It is a small book, but not slight. There is a treasure in it, a clearly defined road to the realization of your dreams. Then after an appeal explaining why he cannot include things relating to the veracity of his claims, Goddard then says, and I quote, I have purposely omitted all arguments and testimonials and simply challenged the open-minded reader to practice the law of consciousness as revealed in this book. Personal success will prove far more convincing than all the books that could be written on the subject. Now, 
after over a year of preaching the Gospel of Goddard, we can justly say through observation that our friends have absolutely no personal success by which to convince us of its truth. We will be waiting, but I am already confident that it is not forthcoming. They can say that belief burns boats, but belief will not buy one for you if you desire to own one. They can say that time will tell, and I am certain that it will. Time is also an excuse for those who argue in favor of evolution, that it only requires lots of time, even immeasurable time. And they believe in that. For that, I would rather wait on the Lord, Yahweh our God, who has proven himself to be true. Here in the first words of his book, we see the beginning of Goddard's humanism and materialism. First, he speaks of the art of realizing your desire. But the scripture reveals for us the art of realizing our desire, so long as our desires are righteous. In the 37th Psalm it says, Trust in Yahweh, and do good. So shalt thou dwell in the land, and verily thou shalt be fed. Delight thyself also in Yahweh, and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. Commit thy way unto Yahweh, trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. But then on the other hand, the same psalm, a couple of verses later, warns, Rest in Yahweh, and wait patiently for him. Fret not thyself because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who brings wicked devices to pass. The scripture teaches us that Yahweh our God provides for us, yet the wicked prosper all around us. This is a test for us. A little further on in the same psalm we read, For evildoers shall be cut off, but those that wait upon Yahweh, they shall inherit the earth. For yet a little while, and the wicked shall not be. Yea, thou shalt diligently consider his place, and it shall not be. But the meek shall inherit the earth, and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. So why do we need Neville Goddard? If the scripture teaches us how to righteously realize our desire. Because Goddard supposed that we can bypass God. So he says of his book that it gives you an account, and these are Goddard's word of course, words of course, it gives you an account of the mechanism used in the production of the visible world. I thought that account was in Genesis chapter 1. It is a small book, but not slight. There is a treasure in it, a clearly defined road to the realization of your dreams. Goddard promotes the idea that man can be God and that man can imagine things into existence. That is the foundation of humanism, and the concept is also found in the Kabbalah. We've talked about it quite a bit in our Protocols of Satan and the Jews in Medieval Europe. But the word of Yahweh tells us that he created the visible world and everything in it, so Godard denies him. 
We shall begin with chapter 1 of Goddard's book, which is subtitled, Law and Its Operation. It's not God's law. The world, and all within it, is man's conditioned consciousness objectified. In other words, you're suffering because you're used to suffering, so you're thinking about suffering, and you'll continue to suffer. Consciousness is the cause, as well as the substance of the entire world. We think the Jews rule the world. has nothing to do with scripture, but because we think it, it's true, right? That's bullshit. So it is to consciousness that we must turn if we would discover the secret of creation. This is the words of Goddard. Knowledge of the law of consciousness and the method of operating this law will enable you to accomplish all you desire in life. You don't need to work. Just imagine. Sounds like John Lennon. Armed with the working knowledge of this law, you can build and maintain an ideal world. Imagine there's no God. That's what John Lennon did. Now there's no John Lennon. In my opinion, the discerning Christian would dispose of Neville Goddard here and now, as the scriptures inform us on several occasions, as we read in Revelation chapter 4, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. Now there are corruptions of Yahweh's creation, but I know not one passage of scripture that informs us that man created, or that man may create anything. Man can rebel against God and sin, or man can labor in stewardship of Yahweh's creation, for example as a husbandman, or as a craftsman. But man cannot actually create anything on his own. The man that builds a house only takes wood that Yahweh created and refashions it into something usable. The man that makes a knife takes iron that Yahweh created and refashions it into something usable. And then some people would stick it in your back. The following is from Deuteronomy chapter 10, a passage we cite quite often in relation to wealth We will cite again here. Therefore shalt thou keep the commandments of Yahweh thy God, to walk in his ways, and to fear him. For Yahweh thy God brings thee into a good land, a land of brooks and water, of fountains and depths that spring out of valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley and vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land wherein thou shalt eat bread without scarceness, and thou shalt not lack anything in it. A land whose stones are iron, and whose hills, out of whose hills, thou mayest dig brass. Note that the ancient Israelites were not blessed with things, but with the ability to obtain things through their own labor. There's an important difference. When thou hast eaten and art full, then thou shalt 
Bless Yahweh thy God for the good land which he has given thee. Beware that thou not forget Yahweh thy God in not keeping his commandments and his judgments and his statutes which I commanded thee this day. Lest when thou hast eaten and art full and hast built goodly houses and dwelt therein and when thy herds and thy flocks multiply and thy silver and thy gold is multiplied and all that thou hast is multiplied then thine heart be lifted up and forget Yahweh thy God who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage who led you through that great and terrible wilderness wherein were fiery serpents and scorpions and drought where there was no water who brought thee water forth out of the rock of Flint who fed thee in the wilderness with manna which thy fathers knew not that he might humble thee and that he might prove thee to do thee good at thy later end so we see that trials of scarcity are a test from God and our reward is found at the end of those trials that's how we are perfected but now a warning accompanies the reward where it's said in verse 14 then thy heart be lifted up And thou say in thine heart, in verse 17, My power and the might of mine hand has gotten me this wealth. But thou shalt remember Yahweh thy God, for it is he that gives thee power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant which he swore unto thy fathers, as it is this day. And it shall be, if thou do it all forget Yahweh thy God, to walk after other gods and serve them and worship them. I testify against you this day that you shall utterly perish as the nations which Yahweh destroyed before your face, so shall ye perish because you would not be obedient unto the voice of Yahweh your God. Following Neville Goddard, that is to walk after other gods, I have no doubt. The things that we have are given to us of God they are gifts from Yahweh our God that he may establish his kingdom we make nothing of ourselves the things we have are gifts from our God and we receive them on his terms not on our own often we must add our own labor in order to put those things into use nowhere in scripture do we see instructions as to how a man can create anything on his own. Everywhere that the children of Israel are blessed, the bounty comes from Yahweh their God. Unless that bounty is from the rewards of unrighteousness, for which then they are punished. Continuing with Neville Goddard, and it gets a lot worse. Consciousness is the one and only reality, not figuratively, but actually. This reality may, for the sake of clarity, be likened unto a stream which is divided into two parts, the conscious and the subconscious. In order to intelligently operate the law of consciousness, it is necessary to understand the relationship between the conscious and the subconscious. And here, I hate to say it because it's rather crude, but we are actually going to get brain-fucked. 
The consciousness is personal and selective. The subconscious is impersonal and non-selective. The conscious is the realm of effect. The subconscious is the realm of cause. These two aspects, and here's what I'm talking about, these two aspects are the male and female divisions of consciousness. The conscious is male. The subconscious is female. And that's Jewish Kabbalah if I ever heard it. The conscious generates ideas and impresses the, these ideas on the subconscious. The subconscious receives ideas and gives them, gives form and expression to them. By this law, Goddard calls this a, a law, first conceiving an idea and then impressing the idea conceived on the subconscious, all things evolve out of consciousness. He's saying that all things evolve out of the thoughts of man. Do we get that yet? And he says, And without this sequence, there is not anything made that is made. That is a direct denial of the scriptures. There is no doubt this man is a devil. The consciousness, he says, impresses the subconscious while the subconscious expresses all that is impressed upon it. The subconscious does not originate ideas but accepts as true those which the conscious mind feels to be true and, in a way only known to itself, objectifies the accepted ideas. In other words, the conscious, the subconsciousness creates every idea it accepts. So if your subconsciousness creates, accepts the idea that you have a million dollars in your checking account, I gather that Neville Goddard believes that you're going to have a million dollars in your checking account. Somehow. In a process that's only known to itself. He continues and he says, Therefore, through his power to imagine and feel, and his freedom to choose the idea, he will entertain. Man has control over creation. Control of the subconscious is accomplished through control of your ideas and feelings. The mechanism of creation is hidden in the very death of the subconscious, the female aspect or womb of creation. And reading that, I do feel like I was brain-fucked. All of this is humanism, the concept that man can elevate himself to the position of God. It is the denial of Yahweh our God and his power to create, and the elevation of, elevation of man to the position of God and creator. We have indication that our friends have even accepted Goddard's explanation of the male and female aspects of consciousness and have extended them to God himself, claiming that God is both male and female. That is the same position that the Talmudic Jews have, and now they use it to promote the idea of transsexuality. This is not Christianity. It is occultism, and Jewish occultism at that. 
even if our friends strip away the anti-Christian aspects of Goddard's teaching, they are nevertheless teaching anti-Christian concepts. We will discuss some of the passages they abuse to this end shortly, but what follows gets worse. As Goddard begins to abuse scripture to support his false premise, here again from chapter 1 of his book, Although the subconsciousness faithfully serves man, it must not be inferred that the relation is that of a servant to a master, as was anciently conceived. I don't know where that was anciently conceived. It's not in the scripture. The ancient prophets... (coughs) I'm sorry, I'm joking. The ancient prophets called it the slave and servant of man. St. Paul personified it as a woman and said the woman should be subject to the man in everything. Now he cites five passages of four passages of Paul and one passage in 1 Peter chapter 3 which talk about literal man and wife relationships in the Christian assemblies and he uses that in this context of somehow the apostles talking about the consciousness and its relationship to the subconsciousness and this is pure chicanery this is chutzpah this is so Freudian that Gotthard could have outdone Freud he goes on to say that the subconscious does serve man and faithfully gives form to his feelings. However, the subconscious has a distinct distaste for compulsion and responds to persuasion rather than to command. Consequently, it resembles the beloved wife more than the servant. The husband is head of the wife, citing Ephesians 5.23 may not be true of man and woman in their earthly relationship, but it is true of the conscious and the subconscious, or the male and female aspects of consciousness. The mystery to which Paul referred when he wrote, This is a great mystery. He that loves his wife loves himself, and they too shall be one flesh, is simply the mystery of consciousness. Consciousness is really one and undivided, but for creation's sake, it appears to be divided into two. The conscious, which he calls the objective, or male aspect, truly is the head and dominates the subconscious, which he calls the subjective, or female aspect. However, this leadership is not that of the tyrant, but of the lover. And now I have definitely been brain So here we have it. Godard denies that in all of these passages, Paul of Tarsus was talking about the relationships between real men and real women. He has not one shred of evidence to prove his theory concerning male and female consciousness. Not a single shred. And we can't imagine that the Greeks didn't have words to describe that, because they certainly did. So Goddard says that Paul's statement that a husband 
is the head of the wife may not be true of man and woman in their earthly relationship. And by that he also advocates feminism as well as a purely psychological interpretation of scripture where he says that Paul was talking in a code language about the conscious and the subconscious. Something that there is no basis for believing. Except that Goddard made it up or some clown before him in the Kabbalah or some other Jewish writing made it up. And we'll get to that too. With his psychological interpretation of scripture, anything can be made to be true. And the word of God is reduced to rabbinical dispute such as that which is found in the Talmud. If we did not know better from Goddard's viewpoint, we may think that Paul of Tarsus must have been writing his epistles to the Frankfurt School. This is not Christianity. This is the subversion of Christianity and we are saddened that some of our friends or former friends have adopted this bullshit. We will quote from the next passage from Goddard as he continues to abuse scripture to support his false premise. Continuing from chapter 1 of his book. If my anger can be restrained for me to get through this crap. Goddard says, So by assuming the feeling that would be yours, were you already in possession of your objective, the subconscious is moved to build the exact likeness of your assumption. I guess it'll just materialize in your life. You convince it that you own a Cadillac and you'll have one in your driveway tomorrow morning. He says, your desires are not subconsciously accepted until you assume the feeling of their reality. For only through feeling is an idea subconsciously accepted. And only through this subconscious acceptance is it ever expressed. It is easier to ascribe your feelings to events in the world than to admit that the conditions of the world reflect your feelings. Wow. However, it is eternally true that the outside mirrors the inside. And of course, there's absolutely no proof of that rigmarole, that, that Jewish trash. And here he reveals himself. He quotes, As within, so without. As above, so below. As below, so above. As within, so without. As without, so within. Correspondence, the second of the seven principles of Hermes Trismegistus. A man can receive nothing unless it is given him from heaven, quoting John chapter 3. And the kingdom of heaven is within you, quoting Luke chapter 17. Nothing comes from without. All things come from within, from the subconscious. Then he says, It is impossible for you to see other than the contents of your consciousness. Your world in its every detail is your consciousness objectified. Objective states bear witness of subconscious impressions. A change of impression results in a change of expression. And let me say to Carl Jung, some people pronounce it Jung in English, 
Carl Jung, the famous psychiatrist, wrote about this law of correspondence probably before Goddard did. So this is nothing new in psychiatric circles. This is Gnosticism. This is alchemy. This is Hermetic philosophy. This is Neoplatonism. These are the foundations upon which the Kabbalah was written. As I've proven in my podcasts on the Jews in medieval Europe and the protocols of Satan. Note where Goddard says that the subconsciousness is moved to build the exact likeness likeness of your assumption. He is teaching that the subconscious of man has creative power in the physical world. He is teaching that man has the power that God had, where it is described in Genesis that Yahweh said, Let there be, and it was so. Nowhere is this concept found in Scripture. None of this is Christian, but Goddard steals passages from the New Testament in order to make it appear Christian. Where John the Baptist said that a man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven, it was a response and a denial to those who assumed that he was the expected Messiah. So he was really stating that the Messiah would be from God, but that he was not. Then where Christ had told his adversaries in Luke that the kingdom of heaven is among you, he was referring to the people of God which his adversaries were not. Elsewhere he told them that they were from beneath, that they were not from God, in John chapter 8. But Goddard teaches that, as it is below, it is above, which is just bullshit. In the verse which proceeds, in Luke chapter 17, Christ said, The kingdom of God comes not with observation, indicating that the kingdom must nevertheless come, and that it is not already here within us. It's among us, in his people. But then, in Acts chapter 1, the apostles asked him, Wilt thou at this time restore the kingdom again to Israel? He answered in turn, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons, which the Father has put in his own power, again indicating that the kingdom was yet to come. It is here in his people, but it is not yet instituted. So none of this can be twisted to mean that the kingdom is in the subconscious of man. Goddard takes two passages, unrelated in context, and twists them to make it so appear. But he is a dishonest interpreter. He is not a Christian. Paul of Tarsus understood that the kingdom of God would only be established through suffering, where he wrote in 2 Thessalonians chapter 4. I'm sorry, in 2 Thessalonians, and I didn't mark the chapter. So that we ourselves glory in you, in the churches of God, for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure, which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. Evidently, the kingdom of God is not to be found in the subconscious of men or Paul would have helped them to get it out into their reality. Now, in the last passage, 
which we, which we shall quote from this first chapter of his book. And in direct contradiction to Paul, Goddard states, in short, you express and have only that which you are conscious of being or possessing. To him that has, it is given. Denying the evidence of the senses and appropriating the feeling of the wish fulfilled is the way to the realization of your desire. In other words, you don't see a million dollar mansion. You don't have a million dollar mansion. You can't touch or feel a million dollar mansion. But if you deny those senses and believe you have a million dollar mansion, that's the way to fulfilling that desire. Bullshit. He says, mastery of self-control of your thoughts and feelings is your highest achievement. However, until perfect self-control is attained, so that, in spite of appearances, you feel all that you want to feel, use sleep and prayer to aid you in realizing your desired states. These are the two gateways into the subconscious. And that's the end of my quote from Godhard or Godtard. Goddard cited several passages from three Gospels here, none of which have anything to do with his, with his assertions. But just as badly, here he is also asserting that if a man has lust for the woman next door, that he may be able to use sleep and prayer to imagine being in bed with her, and according to the Gospel of Goddard, one day he will awaken and she will be in his bed. Or perhaps if he has lust for money, and he sincerely believes that he already has the money he wants, it will somehow magically appear within his possession. But Yahshua Christ had warned us to the contrary. He tells us to pray that ye not enter into temptation. That's why we pray. He never gave an example of using sleep and prayer to aid you in the fulfillment of your personal desires. Not once. Paul of Tarsus, we can request things from God so long as they are righteous things, and we'll get to that. Paul of Tarsus also taught the need for self-control of the thoughts and feelings, or emotions, in this regard, he wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ and having in a readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. So Paul taught that we should cast down the imaginations of men and that we must be obedient to Christ. But against the knowledge of God, Neville Goddard teaches that a man is the creator of his own reality and that we should have faith in the imaginations of men. We should have belief in the imaginations of men. Those same things Paul tells us to cast down.
because we should all as Christians put aside our own imaginations and seek the will of God we can spend months examining Godard against the scriptures and we can pull him down at every turn we feel that what little we have addressed here is sufficient for our present purposes at least for the time being but now we must inquire from where did Godard get his ideas concerning scripture the following is a brief biography which is found at the website freenethel.com a site which promotes Goddard's lectures and writings. This page is titled Neville Goddard Wiki and it is purported to be a duplicate of the Neville Goddard Wikipedia page which was supposedly removed in 2014 for reasons which are disputed from the Neville Goddard Wikipedia page Neville Lancelot Goddard who lived from 1905 to 1972 was a prophet profoundly influential teacher and author he did not associate himself as a metaphysician with any ism or new thought teaching as commonly advertised by these collective groups. Goddard was sent to illustrate the teachings of psychological truth intended in the biblical teachings and restore awareness of meaning to what the ancients intended to tell the world. And this gets better. Or, or actually a lot worse from the proper perspective. Neville Goddard was born on February 19th, my father's birthday, right? February 19th, 1905, in St. Michael, Barbados, in the British West Indies, to Joseph Nathaniel Goddard, a merchant, sounds a lot like Alexander Hamilton, right? And Wilhelmina Nee Hinkinson, Neville was the fourth child in a family of nine boys and one girl. In 1922, he came to the United States on board the SS Vasari to study drama at the age of 17. He became a dancer, and during this time he married his first wife. And they had a son together named Neville Joseph, Joseph Neville Goddard. While touring with his dance company, in England, he developed an interest in metaphysics after striking up a conversation with a Scotsman who lent him a series of books on the powers of the mind. Upon his return to New York, he gave up the entertainment industry to devote his full attention to the study of spiritual and mystical matters. Neville Goddard's first marriage was short-lived and he remained single for years until in the 1930s he met his second wife who was a designer after they married they had a daughter named Victoria or Vicky in 1943 he was drafted into the US Army at age 38 which he did not want especially since he felt he was too old to become a soldier and had a wife and daughter at home to take care of through the power of imagination as Neville told it in his March 24th 1972 lecture 
He was honorably discharged after just a few weeks of training. One consequence of his brief army training was that he received full United States citizenship, having been a British citizen up to this point. I would rather think that he pulled some sort of scam. Now, under the subtitle, the same article, which is from a website that promotes Goddard's work, that is very, that looks upon Goddard very favorably, of course, we have Abdullah, Neville Goddard's teacher. He was in bed with a sand nigger. Worse than that, he was in bed with a Jewish sand nigger. Goddard's interest in esoteric interpretations of the Bible deepened after he met Abdullah, an Ethiopian Jew, who lectured on, imagine this, who lectured on esoteric Christianity and taught both Goddard and Joseph Murphy. Neville went to hear him somewhat under protest to satisfy the constant urging of a friend saying, I recall the first night I met Abdullah. He had purposely delayed going to one of his meetings because a man whose judgment I did not trust had insisted on my attendance. At the end of the meeting, Ab approached me and said, Neville, you are six months late. Startled, I questioned how he knew my name when he said, the brothers told me you would be here six months ago. Then he added, I will remain until you have received all that I must give you. Then I will depart. He too may have longed to go, but he had to wait for me. From this introduction, Neville studied with Abdullah, learning the learning Hebrew, the Kabbalah, and the sim- hidden symbolic meaning of scripture. Now let me get this straight. Neville Goddard learns this bullshit from this Ethiopian Jew and friends of mine who have been familiar with my work for years have departed to follow after this shit. This Jewish lie. Wow. Y'all should be ashamed of yourselves. Y'all must be caught up in some sort of lust. Only lust would do this. This is where we must throw down the gauntlet. Anyone teaching according to the writings of Neville Goddard is teaching according to the Kabbalah and in pursuit of the humanism and materialism of the Jews. We want nothing to do with these things. And of course we understand why one of those same friends declared that belief burns boats. But that is because his belief is not a Christian belief. Let this be a warning to all of our friends. Do not be deceived by this attempt to repackage the Kabbalah within Christian, within Christian identity. Do not be deceived by this bullshit. This is disgraceful. Here is an assortment of quotations from the balance of what, of that Neville Goddard Wikipedia page. I think I only have... Yeah, I probably got about three or four. First, or actually next, because we've also already read much of it, but we're kind of going to skip around the bottom half. In his early lectures and books, Neville dealt solely with what is called the law, 
the technique of creating one's physical reality through imagining. It is this portion of his expression that most closely accords with the teachings of the New Thought movement. And it's, of course, not New Thought at all. It's resurrected Kabbalah, Neoplatonism, Gnosticism. In the year 1959, he began to experience what he called the promise. He later wrote, I did not know of the promise until I began to experience it and have it unfold within me beginning that summer and continuing during the three and one half years. And this is scriptural. Read it in the book of Daniel where it is referred to as a time, times, and a half. It comes to 1260 days in your experience of it. Now we would assert that this is certainly not scriptural and that Goddard is a clown who twists all of scripture into a psychological pretzel so that he can relate it to personal experience in the same manner that many modern Judaized Christian denominations are accustomed to doing. Daniel's words only apply to the people of Yahweh collectively and have nothing to do with personal trials or their individual consciences. Continuing with our reading, Goddard says, in the later part of the, I'm sorry, the article explaining Goddard's life, the Wikipedia page says, in the later part of the 1960s and early 70s, Neville gave more emphasis to the promise than to the law, meaning one of his other concepts, his original concept. One could use imaginal power to change one's circumstances, he said, but it would be temporary and will vanish like smoke. He went on to explain that the promise superseded the law, claiming, oh, you can use it, meaning the law, to make a fortune, to become known in the world. All these things are done, but your true purpose here is to fulfill scripture, of course, his interpretation of scripture. After subordinating the law to the promise, he became as eager to hear accounts by those who had experienced the promise and sharing such accounts as he had earlier of those with the law. So we see that the real point of the law and the promise, which have absolutely nothing to do with the laws and promises of God, is actually wealth and material gain, things which Christians may have, but the love of and pursuit of, which Christians should reject. You may have wealth, you may have material possessions, but you don't live your life pursuing those things. And when you get them, you do your best to use them for good. Bordering on blasphemy, we read the following. Neville's theological view, again from this wiki page, Neville's theological view of the promise includes both the cosmology of union with the Godhead after death and future restoration for those who do not accept the promise during their lives. In other words, if you do not accept his psychology. Of the promise, he said, you do not earn it. It is a gift. It is all grace. God's promise is unconditional. God's law is conditional and comes in its own good time. 
If you do not experience it in this life, he said, you pass through a door. All That's all that death is. And you are restored to life instantly in a world like this. Just this world. And you go on there with the same problems that you had here. With no loss of identity. Not old, not blind, not crippled. If you depart this life in that way, but young. In this restorationist afterlife, he said of people there. They grow and they marry and they die there too. With all the fewer death that we have here. And if they die there without experiencing the promise, they are restored again to life. And again and again in a place best suited to the work yet to be done in them. And it continues until Christ be formed in you. And as sons of the resurrection, you leave this world of death never to enter it again. Wow. He calls it God's law and God's promise. But they are anything but. So we have reincarnation and transmigration of the spirit and many other false and anciently pagan doctrines all rolled up into one cult-like belief. Pass me the Kool-Aid. It is a disgrace that this is being introduced into Christian identity. And it is my obligation to speak against it. I only wish that I had taken the time to do so a year ago before it festered to this point. I heard certain people talk about Neville Goddard but the words just kind of ran off my back. I had no idea who this bastard was. In a forum, and now I'm going to quote another bastard, right? In a forum posting at the website, Quora.com, where it was asked by people that post there, why Wikipedia removed the page for Neville Goddard, the page that's preserved at freeneville.com. A Sandnigger devoted to Goddard made the following remarks, which we will edit very slightly for grammar. In his writings, this is the Sandnigger, who's a devoted fan of Goddard. In his writings, he clearly mentions that the Bible is not about anything that happened in history. And that's the idea that we get from the articles we have already read. Rather, he, meaning Neville, is of the opinion that the stories in the Bible are psychological events that take place in each and every one of us. This not only makes the Bible look less holy, but also makes Christianity look less of a divine religion. Of course, the Jews would always seek to do that. Neville explains how to use the faculty of imagination which he refers to as the God within us in his writings. Imagine there's no heaven. To achieve anything that a person desires. The ancients coded the power of mind or imagination in the form of these stories so that they will be passed on to the generations. In other words, to hell with the historicity of scripture to hell with the absolute veracity of scripture it's just a bunch of stories that have codes this is what the Jews have been trying to tell us for centuries this shit ain't new and it ain't special and it sure as hell ain't Christian and it's not godly 
And this summary which we're reading, I can attest is fairly accurate from the, I don't want to say hundreds, but at least dozens of other pages I read on the information which I collected today on Neville Gotthard. He says they, the ancients, gave it a religious importance because they understood that religion is one of the most important things that a person identifies with. Also, coding the stories made the passing on of the wisdom very easy because then the powerful people would not hoard the knowledge only for themselves. Then he makes the ridiculous claim. Constantinople tried to burn all the original copies and edited out all the powerful verses in the Bible to a great extent. And I could tell you as one who has studied the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were well out of the reach of the people at Constantinople, and as one who has studied many other ancient manuscripts far prior to the Byzantine Empire in Constantinople, that that's all bullshit. It's not true at all. There were things added to the scripture much more than there were things taken out. In fact, I don't remember anything significant taken out. There were there are apocryphal books which were not accepted, and some of those are disputed, but even they were preserved for the most part. There are books that are missing that are mentioned in, in the Old Testament, but those books have been missing since the Assyrian and Babylonian captivities they've been missing. Our writer on the Quora.com goes on to say, the same thing happened with the Emerald Tablet of Thought, the Egyptian idol, or as some say, Hermes Trismegistus. He goes on to say, Neville is of the opinion that the Bible is best understood and will be most properly decoded if you read in the language it was originally written, in Hebrew to be more specific. If read from Neville's perspective, the Bible will unfold the laws of creation and help you achieve everything you desire in life. And then the author goes on to say, because he's an apologist for Neville Goddard, no wonder his writings or his works are not openly advertised or posted in the media, since media is controlled by the powerful people who want to keep the secrets for themselves. In reference to this last remark, Eli James once said very nearly the same things in reference to another nut job named Ron Wyatt. Oh, they're trying to suppress it, so it must be true. Oh, I never heard of it before, so it must be true, because it was hidden from me. That's what he said. He's a clown, too. Of course, most of this is inaccurate concerning Scripture. However, it seems to be very accurate concerning Neville Goddard's opinions. This we can tell from what we have seen here in his own writings, and from many other comments made about him. Even though this source is not one that we would respect otherwise, it is fitting to see what those who are devoted to Goddard say about his writings. All of this should be anathema to us, but it is a candid assessment from an admirer of Goddard's and not from a critic. The problem with Neville Goddard is much that much like that of all other false prophets, 
They profess enough Christianity to make unsuspecting believers think that they are Christians when they are really being sold a lie. If you believe that man is God and can create his own reality through his imagination, then you dispose of Christ and man can become the savior of himself. How Jewish is that? And while Goddard wisely taught the need for love, he didn't do everything wrong, he did some things good, Yahshua Christ himself said, For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness, all these things come from within and defile the man. Similarly, it says in Jeremiah, Blessed is the man that trusts in Yahweh, and whose hope is Yahweh. For he shall be as a tree planted by the waters, and it spreads out her roots by the river, and shall not see when heat comes, but her leaf shall be green, and shall not be careful in the year of drought, neither shall cease from yielding fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately wicked, Who can know it? Imagining that man can create his own reality, one is only engaging in further wickedness. I briefly explained in the opening minutes of last night's program, special notices to all who deny 2C line, part 24, what spirituality is. From Paul's epistles to the Romans and Galatians, There I said in part that in Romans chapter 7, Paul had made an example of himself and said, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. Then in Galatians chapter 5 he said, But if you be led of the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, Variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murderers, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of the which I tell you before, as also I have told you in times past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, peace, joy, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, against which there is no law. And they that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not be desirous of vainglory, provoking one another, envying one another. The spiritual man is the man who seeks to keep the law, the law of God. The reconciliation of these passages comes with the knowledge that the law is spiritual and it is designed to govern the flesh. But those who are guided by the Spirit do not engage in the things which the law proscribes. So long as they walk in the Spirit, the law need not rule over them. Last night I also spoke a little about idolatry, making some off-the-cuff statements. I basically explained that the desiring of things in one's mind, when those desires captivate one's thoughts, is indeed a form of idolatry. We all want something, whether we think we need a car, or a tool, 
or a bigger house or whatever. But Christ only tells us to seek ye first the kingdom and then the things that we need will be given to us. That doesn't mean that we won't have to work for them, however. Sometimes we certainly may. Often Yahweh God provides for us merely by making certain that we can keep and use the fruits of our own labor. As it says in Ecclesiastes, Every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. It is the gift of God. Christians must recognize that every good gift comes from God, as the Apostle, Apostle James wrote, that every good and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, not from your subconscious. The Christian should not imagine that he should furnish his own earthly rewards or that he is even entitled to such rewards, that he can furnish such rewards. The following is from Matthew chapter 6. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust does do corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust do corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, in other words, if it be sincere, thy whole body shall be light. But if thine eye be evil, the Greek word haplous can mean single or sincere. But if thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness! No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and Godard. You cannot serve God and Mammon. No, that wasn't a mistake. One of the precepts of Godard's teachings that I did not get into, but which I saw in his writings as I researched for this presentation, is that one may more readily imagine earthly riches into existence if one intends to use at least a portion of them for the benefit of others. So people are enticed into being persuaded that if they want to spend a million dollars on their brother, that perhaps they can be blessed with ten million dollars. This is like attempting to extort God. If Yahweh wanted your brother to have a million dollars, why do you think that he needs you to give it to him? Godard is wrong on so many levels, and they who follow him magnify the error manyfold. <coughs> Rather than pursuing earthly riches, Christ told his disciples, Therefore I say unto you, Take no thought for your life what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor yet for your body what you shall put on. Is not the life more than meat, and the body more than raiment or clothing. So we do not dream or pray at night of food and drink and better clothing. Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap, 
nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are not you much better than they? Which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit to his stature? Right there, we cannot imagine our reality. Rather, we are stuck with ourselves the way we are. Which of you, taking one thought, can add one cubit to his stature? And why do you take thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. In other words, they don't make their own clothes. And yet I say unto you, that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is, and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? Or how about where we shall live, or what we should drive? We don't It's nice having material things, but we don't take thought and consume ourselves with the goal of attaining material things. Christ says, For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that you have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things, in other words, everything you need, shall be added unto you. Take therefore no thought for tomorrow, for tomorrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Jesus Christ rebuking Neville Goddard. Where did Christ teach that we can provide for ourselves? Where did he teach that we can imagine our own food and clothing into existence? Where did he even mention that we should dream up yachts or mansions? You would think that if Neville Goddard were true, we would find such truth in the plain word of Scripture. But instead we find the opposite. This is why he resorts to secret codes and psychological interpretation, interpretations. Things which the Jews have done in their Talmud and Kabbalah throughout all time. In the Gospel, recorded in Matthew chapter 7 and Luke chapter 11, Christ exclaimed that if a son shall ask bread of any of you that is a father, will you give him a stone? He was speaking of the relationship of Yahweh our God with his children. Christ never taught that man could imagine his own bread into existence, in spite of the fact that he himself was able to feed a great multitude with only a few loaves and a few fish on several occasions. Furthermore, these things cannot be understood or expected apart from the context of Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. The followers of Godard would protest and say that we are gods. And indeed, the scripture does inform us that the children of Yahweh are gods. That does not necessarily mean that they have the creative power of the only true God, who can create entire realities through his word. I know of no scripture which suggests that they do, or that they shall. 
In another place, Christ said that the disciple is not above his master, but everyone that is perfect shall be as his master. The Christianian New Testament has it say, has it to say that there is no student above the teacher, but all having been restored shall be as his teacher. Have we been restored? Have we been perfected, as the King James Version has it? Certainly not. The Apostle Peter indicates that we are perfected in sufferings, and that is the will of God. From 1 Peter chapter 5, Be sober, be be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour, whom you resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. But the God of all grace, who has called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that you have suffered a while, makes you perfect, establishes, strengthens, settles you. Paul of Tarsus himself denied having already been perfected. In Philippians 3.12, where he said, Not as though I had already attained, either were already made perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which I am also apprehended of Christ Jesus. In other words, that he may acquire whatever Christ Jesus has planned for him to acquire, as long as he is one of Christ's people. So if Paul denies having been perfected in an epistle which was written towards the very end of his ministry, how can any of us claim to be perfected? That same Paul in Hebrews chapter 5 presented the model of perfection in Christ, where he said, though he were a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. This is perfection. Suffering in this world in obedience to God even so far as death. Only then can we be like our master. But Neville Goddard evidently believed that he had found a way by which to skip all of these required intermediary steps. I am not going to believe that the apostles of Christ had the opportunity to create their own realities when Paul was beheaded by Nero, when James was stoned to death in the temple by the Edomites, or when the rest of them were martyred in various ways and sometimes after great persecutions and much suffering. No, they didn't have the ability to imagine their own realities. Because James wouldn't have been stoned. He'd have been sitting in the Bahamas with a martini. What the hell? Now, of course, I am not perfect either. And I am certain that I am much further away from perfection than Paul of Tarsus. The friends who have followed after Goddard know me intimately, and it would be easy for them to explain my faults in an attempt to discredit me. I don't care. I only seek to teach the truth. I have always had an open-door policy in my home where any of my friends or listeners can come here and stay with us and break bread with us for so long as they desire. 
We are blessed that many of them have done so. They all know how we live and how we spend our time, so I have nothing to be ashamed of. And Melissa and I have some dreams, as probably every couple does. I have aspirations, as every man should. It is not evil to have aspirations, so long as they are righteous aspirations. A real house rather than a double-wide. Enough land to hold our own feast day celebrations with our friends and our extended identity family. These are things among our dreams. But I do not let those things consume me and I do not meditate upon them. I do not pray for them except, as I have explained in the past, I believe that thoughts by themselves are prayer. Paul expressed his aspirations often, but it was always with a qualifier. If Yahweh wills, we can have aspirations, so long as they are in line with the will of our God. So to me, if our aspirations are realized, so be it. We shall glorify God. And if they are not ever realized, I will simply go about my work and pray that I never complain that I never whine like a bitch if my dreams don't materialize in the morning. No matter how many nights I lay in bed at night and think about that new pickup truck or that mansion on the beach. Neither do we find fault in the aspirations of our friends. Pity us if we did. But rather, we pray that they attain them. So long as they are righteous, it's God's will that matters. We would love to see our friends have success in their endeavors or receive bounty from Yahweh our God. But if Neville Goddard is the path they choose by which to fulfill their aspirations, then we sincerely believe that they are on the wrong path. They are on a wicked path. In the Gospel, the Apostles found it difficult to exercise, exorcise a certain demon. They weren't lifting weights. They were trying to get rid of them. And they appealed to Christ for help. So responding, we read in Matthew chapter 17, And Jesus said unto them, Because of your unbelief, for verily I say unto you, If you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you shall say unto this mountain, Remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. But saying this, Christ did not indicate that one may dream a mountain into existence or a tree which did not exist before. Rather, he was only explaining that faith may move obstacles. This sort of belief for this sort of belief I have had several moments in my life that I am persuaded I have experienced. But that is not the same thing as changing the physical reality in which one lives or manifesting material goods from nothing as we see Yahweh the Creator do. So because I do not believe this, my former friends, I imagine that if they're not former friends before this podcast, they sure as hell will be after this podcast. So because I do not believe this, my former friends fault me for not being spiritual, since I am a pragmatist who insists on sticking to the facts of the Bible and rejecting the feelings of men. But while I do not go on YouTube bragging about my spirituality, 
In my opinion, I do think that I am spiritual, because I seek only to follow the law and the word of God, which is the true spirit. I may not always attain that objective, being fleshly, but it is nevertheless my objective. As Paul had said, the law is spiritual, and he was not speaking in reference to Goddard's law, which is from the Kabbalah. When our friends adhered, when our friends adhered to those same things, we got along wonderfully. Now, since they started repackaging Goddard's teachings, we have drifted apart. So for them, I have consternation, because I know it is not going to go well for them if they remain on that path. I urge them to repent. Repent from their idolatry, if from nothing else. Repent from their following the doctrines of devils. Generally speaking, after more than a year, these teachings have not manifested themselves in their lives. Following Goddard, they have reduced themselves to empty hopes and dreams for material things, which is a faith of materialism that has not borne them any fruit. When we were all spending time together, a year ago, I expressed my doubts, and I was rejected, so I did not push the issue. Often my first option among friends is to look for a different way to get my message across, rather than escalating an argument. Perhaps that was an error of judgment. Perhaps I should have argued now in hindsight. But now a year later, they have still not met with success, and they make excuses. I know for a fact that they will not meet with success. You won't. Forget it. Give it up. However, I am also persuaded that they may blame their failure on my doubt. And for that reason, they are departing from me. But if they truly believe what they have come to accept, they would know that my doubt cannot change their reality. If they were true believers, they would instead comprehend that their success is not at risk by my doubt, but that my doubt should be changed by their success, if indeed they were on a true and righteous path. They're not, so they won't have any success, I guarantee it. I have always said that failure is God's way of guiding us to take a different direction. If you have desires, but they are not fulfilled, if you have needs that do not manifest themselves in your life, then chances are you do not really need what you desire. And you should consider changing your path so that you may obtain what you actually need. Seek ye the kingdom of heaven first. Going to bed every night and meditating on material things that you think you need to impress it on your subconscious. That is idolatry. Goddard is promoting a religion of mammon, but going to bed at night and meditating on the law or the kingdom of Yahweh and how you can do better to help your brethren if you act on those prayers, then your true needs may be provided, even if what is provided is only a way for you to attain what you need by your own labor. From the words of David, we read in the 63rd Psalm, My soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness. My mouth shall praise thee with joyful lips when I remember thee upon my bed and meditate on thee in the night watches. 
David meditated on God and his law as he laid on his bed at night. It's throughout the Psalms. It's in there several times. Do not ponder as to what God can do for you or what your subconscious can do for yourself. Rather, spend your time in prayer to God by seeking what it is that He may want you to do for Him. This is the conclusion to our first refutation of the Gospel of Neville Goddard. If necessary, we will do this again in the future. I pray that it's not necessary, but I'm not going to lay in bed and imagine in my subconscious tonight that it is, or that it isn't. Praise Yahweh. Thank you for listening. And good night.